1: Welcome to the New
0: Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Hari Ziad about their new book, Black Boy Out of Time. Welcome to the show, Hari.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: I am really glad you're here, and I'm so glad that we get to talk about this book today. To start us off, I wonder if you would tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Yes. um, So I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. I live in Brooklyn now. Um, I moved here about 10 years ago um, for undergrad. Um, I went to film school at NYU. So I've always been a storyteller um, since for as long as I can remember, I've been writing and um, a lot of that writing has to do with my identity as a Black queer person, and also um, someone who grew up in a family of a, uh, my mother was Hindu, she converted to the Hare Krishna religion um, years before I was born, and my father was Muslim, um, who converted uh, before I was born as well. And So it's a lot of questions about identity and belonging and what that means. Um, and that is kind of the impetus behind my work at Race Bader, which is a publication I created um, in 2015, as well as the book that we're going to jump into pretty soon, Black Boy Out of Time, which is a memoir detailing those experiences and how that taught me about um, the carceral state and prison abolition, which is a lens through which all of my work is is seen through as a lens of uh, a world without police and prisons.
0: And that leads to the next question, which is, what inspired you to write the book? Yeah. Was there like a particular moment where you said, I've got to start writing a memoir?
1: Um. (laughs) That's a great question. I don't know if there was a particular singular moment where that happened. It's kind of like a confluence of circumstance. Like I said, I was doing race baiter already and um, freelancing about these issues. Um, and it kind of just made sense. I had I, been writing about um, uh, blackness and and abolition. Um, and I had some theses that I could put together in a book Um, but it didn't really become the book that it is now until I'd already started that process. And um, I think that moment was probably when my mother was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive cancer about halfway through writing the book, um, where the book became about this process of healing and using abolition as a healing um, practice um, in order to work through um, a lot of the issues that we had in our relationship. Uh, And so that was like the moment that I think the book in its current form was conceived. And so
0: this is kind of a tough question, but if you had to give the elevator pitch of this book, what is, (laughs) what is it that you say?
1: This book is about how um, the, uh, the, 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 systems of policing and and prison and the ideas that uphold prison and policing in this country um, prevent black children from experiencing their full childhoods and it's about the process of reclaiming childhood um, and what kind of practices that you can do in order to to make that reclamation possible so it's a book about healing Um, it's a very spiritual book Um, it's a book about relationships um, and connecting the the very personal stories of my healing and my relationships to the larger social um, social issues um, it, regarding uh, the carceral system um, and policing and prisons in this country.
0: And writing memoir in itself can be really therapeutic, but you also specifically name in the book that you go to a therapist, and the mm. therapist tells you about inner child work and gives you a book about it. And throughout this book, Black Boy Out of Time, you give us letters that you wrote to your younger self, where you write these letters to, to invite the younger self to know who you are now and to be in relationship together. Can you tell us about how those letters came to be and why you decided to include them in the memoir?
1: Yeah, so um, like you mentioned, therapy is a very big part of the book. Um, the book, like I said, is about healing. And so um, therapy is one of the main tools that I've been using to, to do a lot of this work and to understand uh, what it meant to reclaim my childhood, which is the purpose of the book. And a big part of that um, was through this process of inner child work um and um, at first it wasn't in the book at all like uh, i mean i mentioned going to therapy and all of that stuff and and that part was always central um but i didn't include it specifically in the book until i realized that a lot of the work that we were doing in in inner child work um, this talking to um this like externalized projection of this part of you that um that, that you might not have had this connection to was very much central to the work that I was doing in the book. And so I was like, oh why not just include it in the book um, in the same form that I'm doing in, in my sessions like it doesn't have to stop in once I leave that room. Um, and that's kind of like the basis of a lot of the book. It's like the things that we learn about healing um, don't need to be confined to just the one aspect of, Our lives are just one process of therapy. Um, It can be a part of um, our relationships. It can be a part of our work. And so, I was trying to include that those letters to my younger self, um, as within that vein of like, this is just an extension of the therapeutic work that I'm doing elsewhere. And it kind of like fed each other a lot. Like I would have. Uh, conversations in therapy, and it would bring up stuff that I would later write about. And then I would write about things and it would bring up things that I would take to therapy. And it became kind of like this like loop, um, which was really helpful. Like writing the writing the book, like you said, um, was very therapeutic, but I think it was specifically therapeutic for me because I was able to incorporate that inner child work um, and actually try to to build that connection Um, with that part of myself um, in the process of of writing the book. Um, And so that was like a halfway through writing the book as well. I don't think it's a coincidence that that was around the time that my mother um, was diagnosed that I brought this into the book. Um, I think bringing it into the book really opened up what the book could be and and what kind of um, healing that could happen um, because I, I stopped, I think, just thinking that, you know, this younger self, this younger version of myself that I'm trying to reclaim, quote unquote, uh, was just this like thing that I spoke at and, and could bring into my life. And when I started to write to my younger self in the book, uh, I realized that there was a lot of messages and, and things that I needed to listen to when I was engaging with that part of myself. Uh, and so it became a lot more about asking that part of myself questions and um, trying to work through memories that weren't all the way clear through engaging with with my younger self, um, which I think really expanded what the book could be in a really interesting way.
0: When I was reading the letters and I went through and um, read them out of order in a way, I uh, took them out of the chapters they were in and read several of the letters in a row. And it they read in some ways like a prayer. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that earlier on in the book, you talked about how you were seeing a hoodoo priestess to communicate with your dead grandmother and how throughout the book you grapple with what your own spirituality is um, outside of the the different spiritual practices that each of your parents had pursued, mm-hmm. did did you have a spiritual sense of those letters as well, or am I misreading them?
1: No, I don't think you're misreading at all. And each of those chapters, um, those self-epistolary chapters are written, like the, the names of them all have a prayer in the title. It's like a prayer to limitlessness, a prayer to, for my father. Um, and so I think you're reading it exactly how it was, how it felt while I was writing it. It did feel like this um, spiritual process um, in the sense of that um, it expanded like what it meant to be able to connect with something that's not here in the physical in the same way that you know having a conversation with an actual living child might be um, and so it did feel very much like ancestor veneration that I started practicing um, a while ago um, at the behest of a friend of mine who does, uh, who do work. Um, and she encouraged me to set up an altar, um, when my grandmother passed because I was feeling this re- weird, like disconnect from her. And I talk about that in the book too. My grandmother and I, we have this really tense relationship because of, um, she had a lot of mental health issues that were undiagnosed and, um, led to a lot of mental health crises that, um, as a child, I just experienced this like frightening and terrifying. And so, as I got older, we started to get closer in our relationship, but then she passed away not too far, long after that. Um, and so, I was, I felt like this huge sense of loss. And doing that ancestor work reminded me that I could still have this relationship with her, even though she's not there. Um, and that felt very familiar when I was doing inner child work it's like I felt this loss of like my childhood self and for a long time I was just like okay they're gone I have no there's nothing I can do about it um, and then the re- learning the possibility that there is still some way to communicate with this part of yourself um, some way to communicate with people who come with before you. And even if that communication is just, you know, putting yourself in the headspace where you can be reminded of the, their feeling and then listening to the way your body reacts or the thoughts that go through your mind. Um, that was such a spiritual process to me. And it felt like how I learned how to worship growing up. Um, we grew up with altars and things like that as well. And in Hinduism, that's, it wasn't too far off. Um, But this feeling of like being able to receive something spiritual or something from God or something from uh, someone, a a presence that's not here um, and and being able to actually sit with that um, and let it guide you is, was very big part of the book and very big part of how I think about my spirituality now.
0: And your spirituality now, um, you talk about the journey through that in the book and how difficult it, it is still sometimes to be in a formal church or with a more formal uh, spiritual practice. Have you, have you continued to, to build your own or do you have a larger community that you're also participating with?
1: Yeah, I've continued to learn more about um, Hoodoo and um, African traditional religions. Um, I think the beauty of that, and I just wrote an essay about this, is that there's so, it, we've already, it's rooted in this idea of like building from, um, f- from so many different uh, parts that were denied to you. And so it's, it's so, um, what is the word? uh you're already um being inventive around spirituality with hoodoo like that's a a part of it um that you can create more your traditions and um you can create rituals and uh, we've had to create so many rituals being the uh Descendants of enslaved people who were stripped away from so much of our culture, um, and so it feels really freeing to 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 understand that that can be what spirituality is, and that you can start to uh, create your own path, and that that can be a part of a communal process too. Which is not how I learned about spirituality. Um, totally growing up, I mean, there was uh, there were strict rules and and those things have been in place for years and years and years. And that was kind of the turnoff for me. And it still is when I think about a lot of organized religion today. Um, But as I'm doing more of this exploration, um, I'm seeing that there are still communities that you can build with this idea of a more expansive idea of what uh, a spiritual community can look like, um, which has been really, really empowering for me.
0: You mentioned early in the book that your grandmother is a maternal figure as well as being your grandmother. And you're writing the book when your mother has told you that she has a terminal cancer and your grandmother who was an important maternal figure has just died. So you're dealing with grief and you're dealing with anticipatory grief. Mm -hmm. And throughout the book, there is a lot of grappling with if there was any way they could have known you better in the time you had spent with them because of the religious and gendered norms that, that they felt were so important. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah. Um, and I think that too is like very tied to why this whole process was so healing for me, because I felt like, there was so much that was left unsaid and so much hurt that was still like uh, unresolved because of um, particularly how we experienced gender and sexuality in in my family growing up. Um, But it was also impacted because of my grandmother's mental health and like um, ultimately is impacted because we live in a a country that um, responds to these things with punishment. Um, but yeah, a a big part of why I appreciate my mother and my grandmother is because despite all of this, they had set up space for us to try and carve out a new type of existence. Like them being black women who converted to Hinduism in the seventies, like they were doing so much to just create space for themselves. Uh, And a lot of my resentment came from the fact that that didn't expand to how they conceived of gender and sexuality um, in particular. And so I would think of their um, thoughts about, you know, freedom and expansiveness and community um, as very hypocritical. But as I got older and particularly as I started to uh, work through my grief with my grandmother, I started to see it less as um, hypocrisy and more as, there was still a lot of work to be done on the foundations that they built uh, and they just hadn't gotten there yet. And so um, a lot of the work of this grief has been trying to build from the good foundations that they set for us um, to create more space for me to exist and and to conceive of myself without those same pressures that I might've internalized growing up in that household. And while my mother was still here, we did that work together a little bit as well. Um, But I think now that she's passed and she passed at the end of last year, uh, the work is pretty similar to the work I was doing with my grandmother, which is um, just still thinking about not just externalizing the harm um, to them, but also thinking about the ways that I internalize growing up there and how I still... Uh, might have those same punitive ideas about myself and how to unlearn that. Um, That to me is is healing, not just for myself, but also healing in our relationships.
0: And your mom in her own way tried to give you and your siblings space to really create a self-identity through homeschooling Mm -hmm. you.
1: Yeah, she homeschooled all of us, and my mother had ten kids, um, and then together with my father, there were nineteen of us, Um, so a huge family. And she homeschooled all of us uh, until at least we were in high school, Uh, and that was I didn't realize how much effort that would take, especially as a child. Like I was like, "Oh, I just send me to school," like I didn't know what that was about really um, but she was very very intentional about creating a space where we could come to learning in the ways that felt natural to us uh, and so by the time that we were in school um, we had our own relationship that I felt that felt very positive to learning and education um, but outside of that um, she had set us up with a foundation of like, an identity of like who we were that um, was really powerful, I think, because all of the pressures that come to you when you do enter um, a schooling system um, that will try to change you from that. Um, So, yeah, my mother did a lot of work to that. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier. It's like it didn't really extend to gender, um, but... Uh, that work was still very foundational for how I became uh, able to think of my gender and to reject certain pressures about uh, not living fully as as my queer self because of how she'd done um, in our childhood around other issues.
0: Can you take us back to when you were about to turn five and... She was talking to you about how you were going to become a young man and you had this beautiful hair and she needed to, she felt she needed to cut it off.
1: Yeah. Uh, As I grew my hair out um, from when I was born, I think, or maybe they had cut it a little bit when I was younger. But for the most part, I had long hair when I was a child and I don't remember ever cutting it until I was five years old. And that was kind of like the shift from um, when I was able to recognize that the space that my mother had created didn't extend for us to just like live freely, didn't extend to all aspects of um, our lives because I really didn't want to cut my hair. And I still, to this day, have like a really personal connection to my hair um, as like a part of who I am. But that was when my mother said, like, this, you're becoming a young man. And um, so on my fifth birthday, she um, did a lot of work to just to convince me, I mean, it wasn't really a choice, ultimately, um, to cut my hair. And that was really devastating to me. And um, I think that was when I started to realize that um, this idea of what it meant to be a young man was going to take a lot of things being cut away from me. Um, and it was going to be something that was was spearheaded by the same person who had, up until that point, been the one protecting so many parts of me. So it was really hard for me to, to, to reconcile that. Um, and I think it led to a lot of... Um, tensions, and I, I, I think it's very connected to this ultimate disconnect with my younger self. That's when I think um, I could when I look back at my my past, that's when I started to feel like I had to leave this childhood behind, this time of when I could just be free and exist behind. Uh, and so so much of the work of the book is trying to um, work back toward that space. Um, before the haircut happened. And the haircut is tied to so many other things. That's when also my parents started to pay attention to what I was wearing and how I spoke and uh, who I was around uh, in ways that were very aware of the possibility of me being queer. Um, so yeah, it was a very pivotal moment for me growing up.
0: When you went to high school, that was your first time in a quote-unquote formal educational setting. My reading of the book is that this school is huge. Did it just feel huge or was it also a really large high school?
1: Yeah, I don't know. So that was the first school that I went to. So I had no context for what a big school was. Um, It had 2000 students. So uh, as I spoke to people like in college, people would say, oh, that's really big. Um, But to me, it just felt like school. That's the only thing that I knew it to be. Um, Didn't really have another type of reference. And it did feel overwhelming, I think, coming from um, uh, being homeschooled all that time. But it also felt really, it kind of, I'm kind of glad that I went to a big school first because it gave me so much opportunity to Like, find my people and um, find my own space within this huge uh, school that I don't know if I would have had otherwise. Um, So, for me, yeah, I I didn't really think about it in terms of its size until much later.
0: During that section of the book, you talk about Black excellence and you talk about um, your college applications and the excellence of them. Um, Do you want to? explore a bit of that now on the podcast
1: yeah um so what uh one of the things that um became really clear to me really quickly going to school is that there was a certain type of way that you were supposed to experience um, schooling and that way was always going to be in opposition to the majority of black students so you had to separate yourself out there was even a guidance counselor who uh, said something like you are, you aren't like those other negroes like a joking manner to me because of uh, the way that uh, he perceived i uh, was doing academically and that was kind of just a through line throughout um, and I think that's something that is tied to respectability in Black communities in general. There's this um, talented 10th mentality that you can, uh, if you just exceptionalize yourself in such a way that you are distinguishable but from most Black people, um, then you can, you'll get the benefits of this like anti-Black world that we live in, which is not fully true. I mean, you can um, you you can definitely distinguish yourself from people and and there are benefits that'll be afforded to you because there are benefits that are afforded to uh, to enacting anti-blackness in this world. But ultimately, you're still a black person. Um, and ultimately that harm that you're enacting onto other black people um, is is going to come back and 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 harm you as well.. Um, but I think that was such a, that's so integral to how we think about schooling in general. Um, that's how we uh, approach uh, success, like with percentiles and things like that, rather than um, this idea that, you know, do people learn differently and uh, they come to uh, intelligence and knowledge in different ways. Um, and there's space for all of us to to be um, to be successful in an academic setting. Like that's not the way that schooling is set up. And it specifically uh, is detrimental to black children.
0: Families have a lot going on. to a standard, a standard of respectability, a standard of safety, a standard of excellence, all which are set externally by the dominant culture. And mm-hmm. it's not teaching children a standard of how much have you learned to be yourself.
1: Right, right. And, and, it's, and it's teaching them also that if they don't meet the standard, which is not designed to Um, include everyone, Uh, even if, you know, 90% of us did meet this standard, it would change because the only way that it can uphold itself is by being exclusionary. Um, But it's teaching us that when we don't meet the standard, too, that the appropriate response is punishment. Uh, And that's punishment in in the school system. And and I think that bleeds into the school-to-prison pipeline um, but just in general, how we how we, we think about what it is to be respectable and what it does, what who the people who aren't respectable, the people who are called ghetto and all of these things, not by themselves, um, but those things are projected onto them. They're called these things to be singled out for punishment and and to be disregarded. Um, and I think that's the the main detrimental part of it is that there will always be parts of us also that don't meet those standards. And so we start to punish ourselves. Um, Even when we are successful in these systems, um, you cannot not internalize this punitive lens. Um, And so it's it's about the standards, but it's also about how we react when people don't meet those standards.
0: And you, talk a little bit in the book about um, relatives you have who've been incarcerated. And you tell us in the introduction that you are concerned about what is your story and what are the stories of your loved ones. And so there are people that you introduce us to in, in the book, but you're you you you're protective of their privacy and of the circumstances. Um, would you tell us a bit about the stories of those cousins and the pain of having them incarcerated and what that meant for
1: for you yeah so like i mentioned there's always like the specter of the carceral state in my family and i think for every black family there's some that you can say this um because that's the the history of policing and prisons in this culture um but outside of I mean, it starts with my grandmother. Like I said, she uh, was struggling with bipolar disorder. And so my main interaction with police growing up was seeing them come in response to her mental health crises uh, and seeing her. That generally didn't lead to her being incarcerated for long periods of time, but she would be taken to mental health institutions. And in lots of cases, those are very similar. Um, and so that had a huge effect on me. One, it, uh, it reinforced this idea that, you know, because of her mental health um, issues, like she deserved to be punished for that, which is kind of what we were already talking about earlier today. Um, but it also just reminded me that this is something that was gonna be constant presence in my life. And so growing up, when I started noticing how the police would show up around cousins and other family members, it was kind of just an extension of that. Um, and so I have uh, so many cousins who are tied up into in the prison system. Uh, at the moment, right now, I have three first cousins who are incarcerated. Um, and it's just been, two of them are younger than me. And so uh, see that progression happen uh, has been, it's, it's just too present. Uh, and I think it's really easy, like we make this very clear distinction and we make it very difficult to um, keep in touch with people who are locked up. And it would have been very easy for me to just continue my life and not think about that. Um, but I make a, a very big effort to keep in touch with those um, cousins. And it's a whole life that's been taken away from us. And uh, in the case of my two younger kids, two younger cousins, um, children who have been taken away from the family. Um, And so, yeah, incarceration has been really a big part of how I come to understand um, family because it's affected who I'm even allowed to have relationships with. Um, from my grandmother on down.
0: And it affected, if I'm reading the book correctly, it affected
1: and inspired you to create Race Bader. Yeah, yeah. well, it definitely has been um, an inspiration for Race Bader. And and like I said, Race Bader is rooted in an abolitionist perspective. Um, But I think it's affected all of my work. Uh, The reasons that I know uh, the ineffectiveness of policing and and its inability uh, to heal interpersonal harms and also the reasons that I know the devastation of it is because of how I've seen it in my family. Uh, So it's definitely been an influence to to my work for sure.
0: I wonder if you could take us to when um, you've graduated high school and you've moved to New York and you're going to go to film school. And can you tell us about film school and how that led to your um, internship that happened after that?
1: Yeah, so I um, went to uh, NYU film school, and um, I went with the idea that um, I could just, you know, the work that I could do Um, in the media and through storytelling would be to show what this life is like um, in order to prove, you know, that it's worth something. I think that's how we approach a lot of media. I think that's why representation matters is this like huge calling um, at this moment, because there's this idea that if we could just be represented, then maybe things will change. Um, And so I learned very quickly that there are a couple of flaws with that idea. Um, it's that uh, the, the concept of, of uh, representation changing other people and how they respond to you re- relies on them being able to see themselves in you and empathize with you in that way. And I think at a very um, core level, the problem with anti-blackness is that we're not seen as, uh, in, as humans in the same way as other uh, folks might be seen. And so to represent ourselves um, and show the plight that we're going through, is it necessarily going to, to prompt that same response until we address that issue first? And so that was something that became very clear in my classrooms and how people would react when certain stories were being told. Uh, and the, the messages that I received throughout. Um, and so after college, I went to um, this, the one year program that was also uh, supposed to be this very highly regarded um, TV uh, opportunity um, but it was very exclusionary at, at the core because they paid us like ten, twelve dollars an hour um, in the middle of New York City, and you also got opportunities based on um, who you knew in the in the um, program. And so, obviously, those opportunities mostly went towards white um, and and well-connected people, even though they had opened this space up to. Um, Black folks, and I think that just kind of reflected how this works in general with the media. Like um, we're given these more stages and we're given more screens um, on the surface, but at the root, there's still, the, the landscape is still set up to benefit the people that it was always set up to benefit. Um, and so what does it mean to, for us to in, infiltrate these spaces and to open these doors um, if the, the door is still set up to exclude everybody else behind us.
0: And from the internship, you got a job at an agency. Mm-hmm. Can you take us to the day at the agency where you come in and one of your coworkers has um, the TV on and it's the El Amin case. Uh, there's been an incident at a barbecue restaurant that you and your friends know really well. It's a place that you go can you take us to that moment and how important that case ended up being in your future writing?
1: Yes. Um, so after that program, I started working at an agency and it's actually a pretty great agency, but one of the things that um, sticks out and that I write about in the book is this moment of walking in and saying, we um, generally had to have the news on because we represented a lot of news um, clients Um, and seeing my coworker was watching this news item. And if you're in New York in 2015, you might've seen this story of this like uh, gay bashing is what people were calling it initially, um, because there was this white gay man who was attacked at a Dallas barbecue in Chelsea. Um, And that was at least the story that was told. And and the guy who attacked him, Bena El-Amin was written up as like this hulking brute. I think those are the exact terms that were used in the New York Post or the Daily News, one of them, um, who just attacked this gay man. Um, and of course, El-Amin is Black. Um, and so just seeing how that story um, was set up um, really raised some flags because this was an area where like most people who would go there will either be queer or know that, it, that there are queer people there. And so I did some research and found out that that was the case. Uh, El Amin was queer and not only that, but was pretty well established in um, the black gay uh, community here. Uh, but none of that was, was acknowledged during this whole media frenzy around his case. Um, and even my coworker who was watching this is like, "Oh my God, he's a horrible person. Like they need to lock him up." Um, and so I think the case um, really reflects exactly what we were just talking about a couple moments ago of that uh, when the stories of black people are told, and especially when they're in conflict with anyone else, um, that humanizing aspect of them, Um, in this case, that he was queer as well in conflict with this other queer person. Um, And then it later came out that the white gay man actually hit him first. Um, It doesn't even register. And ultimately El Amin was sentenced to nine years in prison after this attack. like I said, he was hit first, um, but the prosecutor argued that he had like the specific animus to girly men was her quote, um, which was just very bizarre. Um, and this really reflected uh, to me just how much more work that we have to do um, in outside of the just relying on the media to to frame our stories. Because here, this black queer guy was who um, had a story told, and then um, when it wasn't st- told correctly, like he had us as journalists um, trying to push that narrative forward and explain the reality of what happened. Um, but that doesn't even register um, at a certain point. And so what does it mean that we can have our stories told um, and it not be received? Like I think there's something in the translation that needs to be addressed. And so my work now is about that translation. Um, it's not just about telling our stories. It's about the, un- Exposing that when people look at the stories that are told about us, they only see a specific thing. They see a hulking brute who um, needs to be punished and incarcerated for nine years. Um, and that's where where I'd like us to start having conversations about representation.
0: You say that you you tell the writers who work for you at Race Vader write like writing won't save us like only what comes after it will, like something must come after. Why do you tell your writers that?
1: Yeah, I tell them that because uh, there's only so much that we can do. And even like at Race Bader, where we have, um, we we control much of how those things are produced. But um, I was just having this conversation at a, Um, another talk that I I did with Kiese Lehman last week, but um, the fact that I published this book through Amazon, like inherently uh, 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 an imprint of Amazon inherently uh, sets this up to limit the radical possibilities of the text. Uh, But I think even outside of, you know, publishing through Amazon or working with these um, major media companies, there's only so much that text on a page can actually do. And so my work, what I hope that it does is um, inspires us to think of what happens outside of the page. Um, so when we see a story like that of bena El Amin, we see also all of the things that might um, drive it to be told in that specific way. Um, so we can Acknowledge the fact that he might have been queer or he might have been attacked first. And what would that mean for, for to look at all stories in that way that give black people more room to just exist. Um, And so when I'm writing, I'm not just trying to communicate what's on the page. I hope that uh, it inspires people to think about everything that has gone into that writing before uh, it even hit the page. and in particular with the book, like uh, I can't, um, I can't document everything in my relationship to my family and to my mother, um, and so you have to do a lot of work to, to imagine what other conversations might have been happening, um, and then you have to do the work to to act upon that imagination afterwards, where I, where I think the real beauty of this work lies is does it force you to act? Um, and, and that's what I want my work to do, is to force people to, to act in different ways um, and in more loving ways towards black people in particular.
0: The book is surprising in so many ways. One of which is some of the most devastating things that you share are wrapped up in, inside another story. They're contained in a paragraph or in a sentence. And as a reader, I go away thinking about them for hours. Um, One of them was where you shared that your uncle, when he was 17, had been shot in the back by the police six times and Mm -hmm. survived. And I wondered the impact that continued to have on your mother and on why she raised you the way that she did.
1: Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. The fears that she had that she never articulated to you, I think, but that were very clear in some of the boundaries that she was setting and what she would and wouldn't see in you. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: and I wondered what that meant for your grandmother as well.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly what I I hope that's the kind of reading that that people do with this book and in general um, is when they see something like that to make those connections um, that's what it means to write, like the writing itself won't save you. Um, what is wh- What kind of connections are you making? How are, What through lines are you able to see? Um, because that definitely affected how my mother and my grandmother um, saw us and uh, raised us and how much they thought that they could protect us or not protect us. Um, and that definitely... Uh, affected how they perceived uh, our gender performance in the world and and all of these other things and so it gives you an opportunity to to see people more wholly um, and to not be so punitive yourself in your regard for them um, that's uh, one of the stories that I t- remind myself of when I'm angry with my mother. And I think anger is a very valid emotion to have, especially because of what we went through. Um, but it is also something that doesn't have to exist only on its own. It can exist alongside a recognition of this immense pain that she's been experiencing for her whole life. Um, and when you do, when you are able to hold those things together, um, I think you're able to uh approach conflict in a much more healing um from a much more healing standpoint uh which is i think the the only way that we can create the world that we want to live in
0: one of the things that was coming up for me and this is my reading um which probably will tell you something about where i am in my life but um i saw some of the anger as um generational grief almost at a dna cellular level
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i think yeah so much of this anger is grief and all of this grief is generational and passed out Um, one of the things that my brother um, reminded us when my mother passed is that she'd been grieving her grandmother for probably her whole life. Like she had seen her, duh, she'd seen the mental health issues spiral um, well before we were even born. Um, and I hadn't even thought of it like that. Um, and to see, to be able to see how my mother was moving through grief, um, and then to be able to extrapolate upon that and be like, oh, my, my grandmother was also moving through grief and that probably was a factor in her mental health issues. Um, it's, it's passed down to us. And so being able to like heal through grief and sit through grief and, 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 and do grief work is so essential um, to, to uh, our well-being as a community because so much of it um, has been passed down and will continue to be passed down. And if it's not sat with and, and grieved through, um, it'll turn into generational trauma. Um, and I think we have the opportunity now to, to break that cycle and that's what the book is, um, trying to do.
0: Which was going to be my next question, which is what do you hope this book sparks?
1: Yeah, I hope it sparks people to believe in the possibility of healing, um, to believe in the possibility of healing as something that's just, that's beyond just an individual. Um, I think the work that I'm doing is, like I said, an extension of the healing work that my mother was doing. And as an extension of that, I think it also heals her in a way, even though she's not here. um, By continuing to do that work um, and by breaking these cycles, I'm adding to her healing um, and and giving her space to, to exist wherever she does exist, even if it's just in my imagination. Outside of the confines of this trauma, um, and so I hope it gives people a, uh, an opportunity to believe that that's possible. Um, to see how um, it's been that healing work has been done in my life, and to take some of the tools um, for their own life, it'll probably look a little bit different. Um, but I think it's it's to to believe in the possibility of healing is the same thing as believing in a possibility of a world that's different from this one because this world is so not centered on healing. Um, This world is so centered on punishment. Um, And so when we believe in a world where we can be healed, um, I think we'll also believe in a world that doesn't have prisons and policing. Um, And that's my hope for this book is that it gives people the opportunity um, to explore that belief and what that could look like for them, um, because I think it'll be that will be when they get to the space where they can imagine it, uh, it'll be beautiful and freeing.
0: My final question is, what inspired the title of this book? It it is something that I spent a, quite a bit of time thinking about from different angles, and but I I want to hear what the answer is.
1: Yeah. Um, There are two aspects of the title. Um, The first is that I'm thinking about like how thinking of time linearly has been so restrictive in the same ways that we um, touched upon earlier. Um, Like what do we have access to that we've lost um, and why um, do we believe that we don't have access to that? I think so much of that is tied to thinking of time as this like linear thing that's only moving forward. We don't have this opportunity to reclaim our childhoods. We don't have this opportunity to heal our ancestors in that way. Um, and I think um, to be out of this type of, uh, that conception of time uh, is the same thing as being free. And um because it leads to the healing work that's only possible when you're able to connect with your inner child or connect with your ancestors on a different level. Um, but the other aspect of it was my mother had just been diagnosed with this cancer and um, I was realizing how urgent this work was to do this healing um, while she was here. Like there wasn't that much time. And so even if we weren't out of time yet, um, it felt very much like it was. it's limited. Um, and I think that just speaks to the, the urgency of this work and how urgent it's always been. Um, and I hope that when people read this book, they feel that urgency um, and are able to commit to doing that healing work, whatever it looks like in their own lives, starting that day that they pick up the book.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show today, Hari, and telling us about your book, Black Boy Out of Time. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. And you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.